Picking a fight can be a powerful motivator, but you need to pick your fight wisely. The message today, instead of someone to fight, leaders need to find a cause worth fighting for. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 481. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Almost all of us lead teams. Almost all of us are part of teams. But how do we help teams find purpose? You heard Simon Sinek recently on the show talking about a just cause. Today, a bit of a follow-up to that conversation on how to really practically and tactically find purpose and to do it in a way that on its face might seem a little different than what you're expecting to hear. But as you you get into it with today's guest, I know you're going to find this a really practical conversation. I'm so glad to welcome back to the show, David Burkus. David's work is changing how companies approach innovation, collaboration, and leadership. He is the award-winning author of four books and offers a fresh perspective on how to improve our organizations and build better teams by blending research in psychology, sociology, economics, and network science. His books have been translated into more than a dozen languages, and his work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, USA Today, Fast Company, and more. He's consistently been named one of the world's top business thought leaders by Thinkers50, and his TED Talk has been viewed over 2 million times. He is the author of the new audiobook, Pick a Fight!, how great teams find a purpose worth rallying around. David, glad to have you back. Oh, thank you so much for having me back. David, I have to admit, when I first heard about the book and you sent me some of the details, I saw the graphic on the front and the pick a fight, and I was like, wow, leaders aren't supposed to be fighting, are they? How does this work? So where did the where did the inspiration come from? Yeah, well, I mean, they, they are, as long as it's the right fight, right? So that's the, ah. there's a double meaning there. Leaders have to pick a fight, but not every fight will do. They have to choose the right fight as well. Really, I started looking into the research on what bonds together teams, what gets them motivated and aligned. And there's a lot of great research in there, but one I think was being overlooked was the way that it's not just that purpose bonds people together. I mean, it does, right? Having a a great cause or a vision. But the, the flip side of that is that there need to be stakes. There also needs to be something that we are missing out on if we don't achieve this vision. Right? We need to actually be working against some evil or injustice in the world or just some negative future consequence. And so I started thinking about how do we actually label that, the idea that it's sort of cause but cause with stakes. And I arrived at Fight, which is a deliberately provocative title. Hopefully it becomes thought-provoking too. But the idea is that those stakes matter. There are certain causes, crusades, revolutions, reformations, whatever term you want to use that really truly do bond and inspire people. And I started using that as a litmus test when I was working with organizations. I would ask people directly, what are we fighting for in this organization? I found that the teams and the people understood that question and saw what they did as that broader crusade, that broader cause worth fighting for. Those people tended to be the more aligned teams. They tended to be the more uh, motivated employees. And I mean, they tended to be the more productive ones as well. So it's a provocative term, I get it, but I just couldn't shake fight because it's not just about purpose. It's also something that really is worth rallying around and worth seeing what the negative consequences are and working hard to avoid those as well. 
I'm really glad you leaned in on this because I did not expect to like this book as much as I've liked your other books, just on its face, looking at the title and looking at some of the details. And then when I got into it, I was like, fascinating. Looking at the examples and just how you frame this and thinking about fight in a different context. And the the two lines you wrote in the book really grabbed me up front, where you say, picking a fight is a powerful motivator, but leaders need to pick their fight wisely. Instead of someone to fight, they need to find a cause worth fighting for. And that strikes me as the key distinction in the book. Tell me about that. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, this was this was what I knew I'd be working against if I chose the term fight. Is, is unfortunately we had that 1980s, 1990s Wall Street dog eat dog world, killer be killed. Or I mean, we abused this idea of a fight and business as battle. When we people still talk about the war for talent, right? Which is just a total abuse of the term. But it creates this idea that choosing to fight against a particular competitor, a particular rival, or something like that is what the fight is all about. I mean, how much of strategy? literature out there is about the idea of who you are fighting against. And it turns out on an interpersonal level, that doesn't really motivate people. I mean, I definitely run into senior leaders who are motivated by that idea of, hey, we're Coke and we need to crush Pepsi. But your average employee, not so much, right? Your, your average person, not so much. For, I think a couple of reasons. The, the biggest being they might go to work there one day. So they're not all that motivated against the idea of working for a competitor that might be their employer one day. But the really interesting thing to me is that we as followers don't really like when leaders actually engage in that trash talk, that fight dynamic. It can actually motivate people to, to leave the company. And the only people that are actually motivated by that fight, trash talk, competitive rivalry are your competitors. There's actually a lot of research that says being on the receiving end of trash talk motivates you. But the people that you're actually trying to rally around by choosing those fights are not actually all that motivated. And sometimes when people are motivated, they're even motivated to act unethically, which is a huge problem. Yeah, and we've certainly seen lots of examples of that in business uh, handled in, improperly. The thing you just mentioned, it was another thing that leapt out of me from the book, is the 2004 study finding that leaders who pick fights with competitors often end up motivating their opponents to fight dirty. Where have you seen that show up where that kind of a fight mentality actually ends up being detrimental to the relationship between the organizations. Yeah. So, you know, in the, in the book, I actually talk about the, well, I use the Rorschach test of Steve Jobs. Is it fair to, to refer to Steve Jobs' legacy as a, as a Rorschach test? Because everybody sort of sees what they want to see in it. We talk about the, the amazing leader of Apple sometimes, but then we also talk about the crazy, verbally abusive, narcissist leader of the same company. And one thing that never really got enough play is that when Jobs was early on in his career, and even right after he came back, he talked a lot of trash against his competitors, and it encouraged people to, to leave the organization. So, I mean, most notably, because he even takes pot shots at them in his Stanford commencement speech, is the Apple versus Microsoft rivalry, right? The, the Jobs really, really played up, but you get the impression that none of the employees cared all that much. In fact, a number of years ago, I gave a speech at Microsoft and half the audience was taking notes on their Apple MacBook, right? So clearly <laughs> right. Microsoft just sort of blew over it, right? But even the employees inside of Apple weren't really all that satisfied with it. The most dangerous, I think, in the case of Jobs, though, is that Jobs would pick fights against rival departments inside of Apple. That was what ended up leading to his first departure, was he was just terrible to work with and that whatever team he was leading was automatically the only good guys in the whole organization and everybody else was 
was lesser, was lesser intelligent, was working on lesser projects. And even at one point, even Steve Wozniak, his co-founder, left the company because he was tired of dealing with Steve. And so in the end, he, he ended up getting kicked out. And ironically, as part of him coming back, one of the first things he had to do when he came back to try and turn around Apple the second time was he basically had to, I won't say beg for forgiveness, but he had to make amends with Microsoft. Microsoft were the people that bailed them out. And he had to stand in front of all these Apple loyalists and go, you know, one of our most important partners is actually Microsoft. And I keep thinking even today, like how much, how much innovation, how much productivity, how much value in the world was lost because he spent so much time fighting this company that he eventually realized was worth partnering with. And of course, Microsoft knew it immediately. They knew that the more people buy Apple computers, the more people they inst- the more people install Microsoft Word on their Apple computer, right? Yeah, <laughs> right? which I is... mean, I'm a huge Apple fanboy and I still type in Microsoft Word. So, you know, there's that. It's interesting thinking about this from a standpoint of not fighting rivals. And then that begs the question then, okay, picking the fight, how to pick a fight then? And the word that really leapt out at me too in the book is superordinate, of having a superordinate goal. Tell me about that. Yeah. So a a superordinate goal is a a goal that is so big, it requires interdependence from communities that used to never have to collaborate, right? And can only be achieved if you get those communities to work together. So it's not just a goal, like your team can have a goal, but when your team has a goal that is so large, it requires them to work with other teams, it requires them to tear down the silos and politics and turf wars and all that sort of stuff, then you're approaching a superordinate goal. And what we find is that teams that are facing that, or, or teams of teams that are facing that, bond at a far faster rate. Uh, the, most of the research from this actually comes not far from where I am in Oklahoma, from a, a robber's cave campground experiment with younger boys who are very, very good at forming teams and then forming their own little mini wars. And the researchers led by uh, Muzaffar Sharif basically had to find a way to get, first they, they let these kids bond with each other, then they introduced the idea that there's another rival team out there and then the rivalry got out of hand. So they had to find a way to get these kids to work together. And the only things that worked it wasn't trust falls. It wasn't, you know, all sorts of these other team building activities that we often do. It was as soon as they threw them a challenge that required the teams to work together because alone any one team wouldn't have solved it. That's a superordinate goal. And so these are the things that I think a lot of leaders need to look at. And if, if I compare and contrast Microsoft and, and Apple or specifically Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, this is something we need to give Gates credit for throughout his entire career. He was always focused on the larger superordinate goal of how technology could enhance our life. And while Jobs was focused on that, he got distracted often and ended up focused on those little rivalries of who was going to create that market share. You get the impression that Microsoft never really cared about that. If it was good for computing, then it was good for Microsoft, even if somebody else got the credit for it. It's really interesting, some of the examples of leaders who have perhaps reluctantly in some cases, and perhaps with good faith, have really looked for the superordinate goal. One of them is Paul O'Neill at Alcoa, who you talk about extensively in the book. How did he do this to create a superordinate goal? Yeah, O'Neill is a, a fascinating case study. And, and actually, when he joined Alcoa in 1987, he looked at the company that was really struggling. The stock price was declining. They were losing a lot of production to offshoring and those sort of things. And really, one of the things that he felt was that we needed to understand the process at Alcoa. We needed to make efficiencies in how we're actually manufacturing stuff. We needed to do more with less. I mean, candidly, what leader hasn't faced the issue of needing to do more with less? But as the CEO of a publicly traded company, he was led to believe by everybody around him that the the important thing to focus on is obviously stock price, right? 
So everybody wanted to talk about inventory levels and all, all sort of price to earnings ratios and maybe even stock buybacks, which are you know incredibly controversial right now because we're seeing they're not working as well as they thought to long-term raise shareholder value. And O'Neill realized, no, that that's not actually going to rally anybody. That might get a couple of the executives in the home office on board, but the people in the factories at Alcoa actually taking the risk, they're not going to be motivated by that. So we started looking around for what would motivate people at every level. And what he found was actually it was that risk piece that we're asking people to take. He looked at the safety record of Alcoa, which was actually already pretty good. But he realized that if he focused on that, he could actually rally everybody around a superordinate goal. That in the end, if you think about how you make a facility safer, makes it more efficient, right? Because in order to study the process you use to create product, you to make it safer, you also learn how to make it more efficient. And if you don't have accidents, you're shutting the line down less. So you are doing more with less by making it safer. But that rallying cry of safety, O'Neill on his very first day as the CEO called a press conference and told everybody, I want to talk to you about worker safety. I intend to make Alcoa a zero accident company, which is insane because in the world of manufacturing, some level of risk is always acceptable. But O'Neill picked what I call the revolutionary fight, which is whenever you can point to something in the industry that everybody finds acceptable and you say, we refuse to accept that any longer, you've begun a little mini revolution. And that was what O'Neill called for. That was the superordinate goal that he knew would actually bond everybody, the frontline workers, the plant managers, the senior executives, everybody would rally around that. Nobody would rally around, raise the stock price. And it wasn't the message that was accepted immediately by the analysts and the folks on Wall Street, and yet it was the goal that actually did drive so much change at Alcoa because he was playing the long game and trying to engage everyone on this bigger subordinate goal versus just trying to placate the people, you know, the analysts and the Wall Street folks in the moment. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we look at how the average CEO acts. One of the first things they do when they jump on that press conferences, they tell all sorts of stories that are basically meant to inspire investor confidence. They're, I mean, they're basically trying to trick people into thinking they have a bigger plan, right? And O'Neill went the opposite route. He was like, we're going to focus on this because I've identified this is what will have the longest term shareholder value. But because it wasn't what those investment analysts, reporters who cover Wall Street, it's not what they wanted to hear. So, I mean, they thought it was crazy. When the press conference was over, everybody flooded with sell orders. The newspapers wrote up all of this crazy stuff. And yet... O'Neill ran Alcoa for 13 years. And at the end of that 13 years, the valuation of the company had moved from $3 billion to $27 billion. The amount of revenue they did in, a, in an average year increased fivefold because he focused on safety, not on increasing market capitalization and those sort of things. Because again, that wouldn't have motivated anybody. But this rallying cry of safety that the industry finds this some level of risk acceptable and we refuse to accept that, that inspired a lot of people. One of the most useful things I found in this book is three different ways to pick a fight. And like you say, it's not about fighting rivals. It's about finding the the bigger, the nobler motive. And you mentioned one of them a moment ago, the revolutionary fight. Can you frame that a bit more for us on what does that look like and what's an example of an organization that has done that well? Yeah. So so the revolutionary fight, like I said before, is anytime you're declaring a revolution, what you are at your core doing is saying that the industry or the community around us, the status quo says this thing is acceptable. And we refuse to accept that either because we find it an injustice or it's not in people's best long-term interest. There's a lot of reasons you can say it's unacceptable. Maybe it's an environmental reason, what have you. But anytime you can say that and then lay out a plan for how we're going to move away from that and change it, you've begun a little revolution. 
My favorite example of this, actually, if I can, is not in the book. So it's even new for you, right? Oh, great. There's a company out of Vancouver named Pella, right? And originally they were named Pella Case because they made smartphone cases. And when I first met the owners of this, I'm like, a big deal. Everybody makes smartphone cases, right? Like I've been, I know how Alibaba works. Everybody sells smartphone cases. And they said, no, 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 no. Ours are different. Okay. How are yours different? Well, every other cell phone case, when you get a new cell phone, you throw it away and it sits in a landfill for 10,000 years. Ours don't. Ours can be composted and they'll biodegrade in 10. And that blew my mind, right? You start talking to the guys that founded the company and that's their revolution is the entire industry that makes accessories, finds petrochemicals and plastics that'll sit in a landfill for 10,000 years, just finds that an acceptable cost of doing business. The environmental damage from this is, is acceptable because how else would you do it at such a low cost? They found a way to use farming byproduct, corn husk and soy husk and a bunch of stuff. To be honest with you, I don't understand because I, I don't know chemistry, but luckily one of the founders does. They found a way to use that and turn it into a moldable plastic. I, I have one of the cases on my phone right now. It doesn't look all that different. It doesn't feel all that different. It doesn't cost all that much more. And yet it, by, when I get a new cell phone in a year or so, this, this one is waste-free. That's their big fight. If you ask anyone at Pella what they're fighting for, they will tell you we're fighting for a waste-free future. And the cool thing about that is they recently expanded. They took a $5 million investment from Jay-Z's investment company, which I just think is cool. I'm not a big fan of Jay-Z, but I think it's pretty cool that you're catching attention <laughs> of those people, right? And when they cho chose to do a product extension, they sort of proved their commitment to waste-free, right? Think about this. You're a smartphone case company and you're going to make a second product. What is it normally? A tablet case or... Yeah, a tablet case. Yeah, yeah. Something else in computers or peripherals. They didn't right, do that. Right, or a they, they said, okay, what's the next most quickly consumed thing? And they identified sunglasses. So they make sunglasses too. Huh. And their sunglasses biodegrade in 10 years if they're composted. They're not looking at what makes the most sense with distribution channels or any of that sort of stuff. They're fighting for this waste-free future. And so they're going kind of line by line, the most consumerism, most thrown away things, they're just going to try and replace it. Their whole idea is we'll never change consumerism, but we can change what's consumed. And that's our own little revolution. And I'm imagining those Monday morning staff meetings of making the distinction of rather than, hey, let's hit our numbers so we hit 3% year over year on whatever metric, which tactically, of course, we all need to watch. But in addition to that, it's, hey, look what we're doing for the planet, for the earth, for our lives by producing these products that are making a change in how we all handle the resources on the planet. I mean, what a, what a cool goal to be after and to be about and to be fighting for. Yeah. Every metric has meaning at that company, right? Because every cell phone case sold is one that doesn't go in a landfill or in the great garbage patch in the Pacific Ocean, right? So even though you're talking about number of sales, volume moved, all of that sort of stuff, every single metric has meaning because it ties back to that fight of a, wa a waste-free future. One of the things that I'm thinking people are probably thinking as they think about that revolution and and finding a revolutionary fight is well you know my organization is different all right we, don't, we have a service we do things a little differently than that how do i find that for the organization the leader that's having a hard time finding that is it because that's not the right fight or is it because they're not looking in the right places so so it could be that it's not the right fight and that's why we have two other ones right and and all three i basically looked at, at every kind of cause or purpose that has an intrinsically motivating effect and then try to come up with an easy way to remember them basically but even in the revolution, I think a lot of people can start their own mini miniature revolutions, right? Either you can look at the industry and go, what's the thing that drives us nuts that we don't do, 
And then you can really play up that idea that you are different and better because you refuse to accept that norm, that normal way of behavior. You can do this internally in an organization too, right? You, you can say that, you know, okay, most of the teams in our organization are really just about performance, but we take the time at every single meeting to connect with each other on a personal level because we find that's important, right? Everybody else has moved past this idea of business or team as family. We refuse to do that. Now, in the end, you'll probably be a better team, but that's not the point. You're looking at a value or a norm that's either accepted that you find unjust or that is not accepted that you find needs to add. And that's the beginning of that sort of mini revolution. But again, I think the big thing here is whether or not that resonates with your people. It's, I work with a lot of leaders who, uh, I mean, candidly, everybody thinks they're the revolution when we start, right? But what we find is we just start to dive into what will actually resonate with the people that they lead. And it might be the underdog, which is the second one, or it might be the ally fight, which is the third type of fight. And so it becomes inherent on the leader, not just to say, this is what we stand for, but to figure out what people already stand for and then find a way to put that to words. That's actually, I think, the biggest misconception about how vision, mission, a just cause, whatever you want to call it, how that motivates people. It's not the leader projecting that vision out and getting buy-in. It's the leader getting a read on his or her people and then putting to words a vision that's already in their hearts and minds. Yeah. And I, I think that's the part of some conversations about vision broadly that I've heard over the years that is a bit missed by some leaders in some organizations is there is a bit of the message of, hey, go into a room by yourself and write up the vision and then come on the mountaintop and tell people about the vision. Yeah. And there is an aspect of that to being a leader and and conveying a vision. But it leaves out the and behind that, which is, what are people going to latch on to? And if I spend time listening and thinking about who do I have, who are the people in the organization, and what do they need to hear, and what's going to be the vision that's going to work for them? And that's actually a great lead into the second one, which is the underdog fight. What's the distinction between the underdog fight versus the revolutionary fight? Yeah. So the, the revolutionary fight is about a change in the industry or inside the large organization that your team wants to make, right? It's about, it's about changing something fundamentally, just like a revolution is. The underdog fight, I mean, candidly, the underdog fight's about proving the haters wrong. I'm blunt around this. I'm from Philadelphia. I was born in Philadelphia, which is the underdog city, if you think about it. Yeah. Right. I mean, our greatest sports hero is a fictional character who <laughs> loses a boxing match. <laughs> And it, it turns out, I mean, Sylvester Stallone is, was not an organizational psychologist, but it turns out, if you, if you remember the movie, the original movie, not, you know, we're on like Rocky Nine, I think at this point, but in the original movie, he loses, but he tells Adrian that he doesn't care about winning or losing. He cares about going the distance because that will prove to everybody that he's not a bum. At the end, the underdog fight is, mo is motivated by proving those haters wrong. And so when you're in the underdog fight, you need two things. You, ne you need a rejection and you need a rebuttal. In other words, it's not enough to just be the little guy. You have to be the little guy with a plan to prove everybody who's calling you little wrong, right? You, you have to be the people that everybody's passed over, but have a plan to get them to pay attention to you again. Otherwise, you're just the little guy. But it's that second part, the plan. That's, that's the real leader's job. If we think back to what we were talking about with going out and finding a way to put to word something, it's that plan that becomes the leader's job. And it turns out there's, it's only been about uh, in the last 10 years that we've really researched this motivating effect of the underdog narrative. But it turns out that people who see themselves as the underdog in a career search, for example, have a much easier time finding a new job. They find it way faster. Um, individuals who go into uh, things like negotiations or sales calls with that underdog narrative end up coming up with more creative win-win solutions. Uh, there's even one, one study that shows that people who, if they feel like the company they work for is being unjustly criticized in the press or by the community, 
actually end up more motivated because they want to prove the press and the community wrong. So there's a lot of power in this uh, underdog narrative. That It's not just my own Philadelphia bias. There really is a lot of power in saying, you know what, they rejected us, but here is our plan to prove the haters wrong. Fascinating. Who has leveraged the underdog fight well? The, the story I like the best, and I didn't really catch this story until after the book was done, but it's actually the story of Netflix. Everybody knows the story of how Blockbuster had the opportunity to purchase Netflix. And, and we look at it as this example of disruptive innovation, right? The truth is there's a book by uh, the co-founder, Mark Randolph, that just came out, unfortunately, after I, I wrote Pick a Fight, that tells the, the true story, which is that Blockbuster made the right call. Netflix was hemorrhaging money. The whole reason they went to that initial meeting with Blockbuster is they basically said, we're going out of business in a couple of weeks if we don't find a buyer. And so they met with the, the CFO and a couple of the people at Blockbuster. They, they pitched this idea of, you know, purchase us for 50 million and they got laughed out of Dallas. Then they flew home, but, but Reed Hastings and the other leaders of Netflix got something from that meeting, even if they didn't get the investment, which is they got an underdog story, right? They got this powerful rallying cry of, look, the industry totally rejected us and here's how we're going to prove them wrong. And if you think about the way that, that Netflix has been led ever since then, yeah, they totally picked off Blockbuster. And then they went after cable, right? With streaming, they went o- over the top, which literally means we're going after the cable industry, right? We're going over that. Now they're going after Hollywood. And, and the first time they won Emmys or Academy Awards, that was a whole idea of like, they're, respect, they're, they're disrespecting us, but we're going to take them on on their own turf and start winning. And wherever they go next, I have a feeling that they will be talking about how they're the underdog in that situation against the establishment. Mm, amazing. It's such a powerful narrative. And I think most of us can think of times in our lives that we have, for whatever reason, felt like we were or really were the underdog in a situation. And that helped us to do something, to be more creative, to fight harder, to stay up late and prepare a little longer than we might otherwise have. And something great happened from that. And then the opposite's true too. Like when we get we feel too comfortable, we then oftentimes uh, aren't the ones being as creative as we are when we're truly in that underdog situation. I, I love the idea of finding that and leveraging that and um and and playing to the strength of that. It's just it's just really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the way you said creative there a couple of different times because it really highlights I mean I'm not the first person to have talked about this. My my eyes were open to it actually from Gladwell's book, David and Goliath, where uh, I think he makes the wrong point, if I'm being honest. He, he makes the point that we only called David an underdog because we didn't understand the whole story. I don't know that that's true. I think the, the real truth is that these people that we look at as underdogs and then they ended up winning more often than they should, they did it because they went around the normal rules, right? <laughs> right? Like you were supposed to engage Goliath in hand-to-hand combat and he didn't. He shot him from, you know, 30 yards away. It's, it's actually, it also reminds me of that Indiana Jones scene with the big swordsman. You know the one I'm talking about? I'm dating myself. Oh here. yeah, where he takes <laughs> out the pistol. It's, it's, it's the same deal, right? Yeah, yeah. He basically wins you didn't play by the rules. And that's one thing that underdogs often do is they think, oh, well, the whole establishment is underrating us because we're not so good at this. Well, is there a way to get the same objective without having to do that? Because we're going to get lost. And that's what really taps into that creative or innovative thinking that happens alongside it. That's why in, in one of the studies, Samir Nur Muhammad did the research on negotiations and people who had adopted the underdog narrative took a little bit different track and usually arrived at a win-win rather than an I win, you lose solution in negotiations because they were thinking, I hate using this term, but because they were thinking outside the box because they had already lost in the box. So why stay there? I love the third one to the ally fight. And my favorite example from the book is Kaiser Permanente's uh, campaign on I Saved a Life. 
Tell us about yeah. that. Yeah. So the, the ally fight is, is really simple. The ally fight is it's not actually about our fight at all. It's about their fight. And you get to define their. It can be a customer in Kaiser Permanente's standpoint. It's a patient. You get to define who their is. But it's not about our fight. It's about their fight. And one of the challenges, though, with the ally fight is it often, I mean, the easiest ally fight to use is a customer, right? Or a patient in the case of Kaiser Permanente. The problem with that is that usually only people who see the customer actually get to experience what's called pro-social motivation, uh, the idea that we're motivated to help other people. When you're sheltered from the customer because of whatever you do, you don't get to see that. And so one of the things that Kaiser Permanente realized is that you know, they are they're one of the largest healthcare systems, really the largest in, in America. They're one of the largest in the world. But only the doctors, the nurses, the people that actually get to interact with the patient on a day-to-day basis really see the fight which is that fight to survive. Maybe it's a fight to, to beat cancer or a fight to beat diabetes or something like that. So they started to think about ways they could, they could get everybody to know that they're in the fight. And they started this campaign. You, you already said it, the I Saved a Life campaign, which is really simple. Be- because Kaiser Permanente was so large and was actually one of the first movers in what's known as uh, electronic health record. And, and I, I only know this because my wife is in the ER position and, and was during the time that everybody moved to electronic health record. Electronic health record is annoying. Right, right. When you're used to writing on paper and pencil, typing that all into an iPad is annoying. But one of the benefits of it is that you can see a patient's data across the whole spectrum. And if they're inside the Kaiser Permanente system, you can see notes from every other physician that they've interacted with. And you don't even have to be a physician. So the way it would work is when people would call in, let's say you called in to get an appointment with your ear, nose and throat doctor. And they said, you know, we've noticed that you are past due for a colonoscopy. And I know we need to talk about your your nasal problem, but we really need to get that scheduled too. And if the receptionist that you called in with, they had the power to actually make an appointment with the GI doctor as well and get that. And if they found something, if they found a polyp, for example, or in breast cancer, if they found a a lump or in diabetes, if they found an an A1C score that was too high, they considered that a life saved and they didn't celebrate the doctors. They get enough celebration. They celebrate the receptionist or the nurse's assistant or those people who don't get any celebration. They celebrated them as the one that actually saved the life. And different locations had different ways to celebrate it, but everybody got at least a pin, but something that declared that, you know what, you actually saved the life by encouraging them to go get that preventative screening. And it's a great way, it's a great example of making everyone at every level aware that what you're doing is helping the the customer or the patient fight on their day-to-day life. And you're leveraging pro-social motivation no matter where you are in the organization. It's really amazing, these three different kinds of fights, revolutionary, underdog, ally, the power that they have to bring people together. And this is going to maybe sound like a strange segue, but I think it's I think it's an important question. One of the people you mention in the book is Andrew Jackson, one of our past yeah. presidents in the U.S. And Jackson was a just a racist, slave-owning, Native American-hating, you name it. He is the worst of America as far as our legacy on so many of those things that we're still struggling with. And yet, he had a moment in his life that he was actually able to set that aside. Tell us about that. Yeah. Andrew Jackson, by the way, just just for anyone listening, no matter what side of the aisle you are, Andrew Jackson is a great response when everybody, anybody tells you that whoever the current president is, is the worst president in history. <laughs> <laughs> right? right. I mean, okay. Republican, Democrat, independent, I don't care. In the last 20 years, there has not been anyone as bad as Andrew Jackson, and there probably won't be again. So when somebody rants like that, you can just go, oh, I don't know, Andrew Jackson, for example. You said it. Andrew Jackson was, was a slave owner, was racist against basically anybody but white people, 
owned a plantation, fought against Native Americans in numerous different wars and battles. And yet, during the War of 1812, uh, and during that time, Andrew Jackson was charged with defending New Orleans. There was a rumor, turned out to be true, that the British were basically going to try and retake the colonies back during this war. They were already winning in the ocean. They were already winning along the Atlantic coast. And if they could find a way to sail up the Mississippi and then hit them from the west, they could basically flank the whole United States and take back the colony. So everything rises and falls on New Orleans. And and Jackson gets to New Orleans with a small troop of actually sort of trained people. Then he goes after the the militia, right? And says, okay, well, who's your, your militia? And there were actually two. There was the sort of normal merchants of New Orleans. And then there was the freedmen's militia, which was the freed slaves uh, militia. It was the colored former slaves who had gotten together and had their own. And he's looking around. And he's going, okay, even that is not enough. So then he goes out and starts meeting with some of the Native American tribes and recruits Choctaw Indians, who he literally led a battle against earlier in his life. Right. And recruits them to this idea that all of us are going to lose our current way of life. All of us are going to suffer if we allow the British to win. And then I think the most fascinating thing is the very last group that he ends up recruiting are pirates. There was a whole, I mean, you've seen Pirates of the Caribbean, right? All of the Johnny Depp, there's a whole group of people um, that were using New Orleans as a smuggling port. And in fact, they really understood the bayous and canals and all that sort of stuff of New Orleans the most. Even those pirates realized that, hey, our smuggling routes go through New Orleans. If this thing gets sacked, we're going to lose all of our livelihood too. So Jackson finds himself in charge of this group. I mean, the most diverse fighting force in, in history to that time and arguably history even after that. And he has to, to bond them together. And what he finds is to our point about superordinate goals earlier, just the mere fact that each of uh, this British attack is threatening each of our livelihoods in different ways, but the cause is all the same, bonded those people together to a degree that we've never seen before. I mean, Jackson was dramatically outnumbered in the battle for New Orleans, but found a way to get everybody together and defend the charge. And basically the battle of New Orleans is, is it was supposed to be over two weeks before that battle happened, but that's basically seen as the end of the war because after they, after the British had basically given up, they sailed home. And that was the end of them threatening uh, the, the United States. That was the beginning of our greatest ally with them, you know, started after they basically gave up in 1812 from this whole idea that they were going to retake the colonies. It all, all rode on Andrew Jackson. And the craziest thing to me is that when it was all over, Andrew Jackson went back to his crazy racist ways. I mean, I yes. wish this was like a Disney movie. And at the end, he learns this great lesson and we all ride off into the Kumbaya sunset. But no, he just went back to his normal crazy ways because he then became president and, as you know, forced marched Native Americans over actually to where I am right now in Oklahoma. So he didn't change his ways. It was the, the bonding power of that superordinate goal, which I think has a, a huge leadership lesson, if I'm, if I'm being honest, which is when you pick a fight, you really do have to pick the right fight because when it's over, especially when it's over too soon, all of that bonding, all of that motivating power is, is lost. It's exactly why... I asked you about him because on one hand, we can look at that like, okay, in this moment, this amazing thing happened. And yet he goes right back to being the racist jerk right after it all plays out. And I think there's the tendency for us maybe to think like, well, okay, that's Andrew Jackson, someone else, ancient history, right? Um, But I think about that in the current context of coronavirus and Mm -hmm. all the things happen in our world where people are binding together in some really amazing ways. And then what happens after that fight's over? And I think that's the invitation for me, thinking about this from a leadership standpoint, is yes, pick the fight. And then from a leadership standpoint, also be thinking about the what's next. Yeah, yeah. 
The book is Pick a Fight, How Great Teams Find a Purpose Worth Rallying Around. It's an audiobook. It's about a two-hour listen. You're going to get a ton of examples around all these. I really loved listening to the book, David. Um, so I hope folks will grab that and check it out. We'll have it in the show notes in this week's weekly leadership guide, of course. David, thank you so much for your time. Hey, thank you so much for having me. You are, you are in this fight too. So thanks for it and keep fighting. A few related episodes to this conversation. One of them was the last time David was on episode 347, The Power of Weak Connections. I found that I've been passing along this episode to a number of folks recently who find themselves, of course, as we all do, in the midst of change and a lot happening in the world and starting to think about how do I reach out and connect with some people in my network as things are changing in organizations and jobs and careers. And there is the tendency for a lot of us to make the uh, thinking error that just because we haven't talked to someone in six months or a year or a year and a half that we can't still engage in a relationship that potentially could be beneficial to both of us professionally or personally. Episode 347 is your invitation to recognize the power of weak connections. David's done some wonderful work there as well. And if you are finding yourself in that place, I definitely recommend that conversation. Also, a real-life example of what we talked about today, how to clarify what's important with Ron Williams was episode 410. Ron is the former CEO of the insurance giant Aetna here in the States and talked about the change and turnaround that Aetna went through several years ago under Ron's leadership and his team. A fabulous story and so many of the concepts we talked about today, Ron and his team utilized well to help Aetna to seek success at a time that was a big struggle. Episode 410, how to clarify what's important, is a good listen for you. And then, of course, I'd recommend episode 473, a related conversation from recently, Embracing a Just Cause with Simon Sinek. So many of the principles Simon talked about in that conversation echoed in David's work as well. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. And if you haven't yet, I'm inviting you to establish your free membership on the site. When you do so, it's going to give you access to so many of the things you've heard about on the show before, all of the past episodes searchable by topic, my entire library with all of my resources that I found over the years that would be helpful to you, the membership casts or the member casts rather, uh, all of the leadership guides are documented there and databased. In addition, something I haven't mentioned recently is there's four audio courses that are helpful to you inside the free membership, all of them available for you. One of them is how to create team guidelines. So if you find yourself in the place where maybe you have decided on the fight that you're going to pick with your team and now are trying to figure out how do I create the guidelines that will get me there, Susan Gerke and David Hutchins, both past guests on the show, were really kind to come in and teach us how to do that. And that is one of the courses archived inside the free membership. So just go over to coachingforleaders.com, set up your free membership. You'll be off and running with all of those resources and the weekly leadership guide every Wednesday. So be watching for that. Next week, I'm glad to welcome back to the show, Michael Hyatt. He is going to be joining me to teach us how to sell your vision. We've talked on the show before how to create a vision and the process for doing that. But once it's created or at least started, how do you actually go and sell it inside the organization? Michael Hyatt going to be teaching us how to do that next week. Have a wonderful week and I'll see you back with Michael next Monday. Take care, everyone. <laughs>